I want in, to invite you to turn with me and your Bible to, uh, sorry, to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. If you didn't bring a copy, that's totally fine, a copy of God's Word. Uh, you can use the black hardback Bible that's in the pew back in front of you. And that's going to be found on page 1,196. 1,196. Last week, or last time we were in Hebrews, we looked at the faith of Moses' parents. This morning, we're going to be looking at the faith of Moses himself. And I won't pre-preach the sermon, but I do think that's interesting, by the way. The faith of Moses' parents very clearly lay a pathway for Moses to have his own faith. Keep that in mind. That's not even part of the sermon. That was all for free. For levity and for illustration, how many of you ever played the game Guess Who? Just raise your hand. You know the question. Does your person have glasses? No. Click, 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 click. Does this... Does your person have any facial hair? Yes. Click, 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 click. You've played the game. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, it's really helpful whenever you learn an interesting fact about this other person's character because it helps you to identify them a little more easily. More helpful questions than are they wearing glasses or do they have facial hair are questions like what do they value most? What do they fear the most? Young man, if you're hoping to get to know uh, a young lady and you're thinking of good questions to ask, this might be a good question to ask, what's your favorite color? You really get to the heart of somebody by asking these sorts of questions. When you understand what somebody values the most and what they fear the most, it goes a long way towards you understanding who this person really, really is. Someone's fears, someone's treasures, they go a long way in getting to know them. Before we read our text this morning, I want to uh, equip you with three questions to be asking of our dude Moses this morning. Three questions. We want to get to know Moses. We want to get to know his, his faith. Who is he? Why is he here in this chapter? And so here's one question. With whom did Moses identify? With whom did Moses identify? Another question, what was Moses' greatest fear? What was Moses' greatest fear? And then finally, what did he consider most valuable? What did he consider most valuable? Who did he identify with? What was his greatest fear and what was most valuable to this guy? those three questions in mind, let's look at the text. Just a few verses here. Hebrews chapter 11, 24 to 28. Here's what the word of God says. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover 
and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word again. Father, we, in humility, stop and ask that you do what we cannot do. Father, there's none of us that are smart enough, strong enough, well-read enough to understand and to change, to see Jesus clearly as we should, to understand our own identity, our own fears, and our own treasures, and to align them together apart from the work of Jesus in our lives. And so we submit to him now. Spirit, would you work in our lives? Would this body be different and stronger as a result of our time together in your word? We ask it, Jesus, in your name. Amen. I often like to give a main idea, or what I think is the main idea of the text. And of these five verses, I want to give you what I think is the main idea. It's this, that true faith involves aligning one's values and fears with their identity in Christ. True faith involves aligning one's values and fears with their identity in Christ. There's those three words again, values, fears, identity. First, we're going to begin looking at identities this morning. There in verse 24, look at it. It says, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Several weeks ago, we looked at the faith of Moses' parents. Now we're looking at Moses' own faith. It took faith for him to refuse the title Prince of Egypt. It was all he had ever known and all he had ever wanted. Egypt had become his home. Maybe you remember those lines from that famous movie, The Prince of Egypt. It truly was all he had ever known. He had thought himself to be an Egyptian. He thought himself to be royalty of the house of Pharaoh. But there came a point in his life where he realized he was actually not a Hebrew. That piece of information was contrary to everything he thought he knew. And now it would require faith for him to not any longer identify as an Egyptian, but to now identify as a Hebrew. The reality is that faith is not believing in God. Faith is believing God. When it comes to your own understanding of who you are this morning, it's not just to believe that God is, but to believe what God has said about you. Similarly, when Moses finds out he's not truly an Egyptian, he has to access that piece of information by faith. I encouraged you this morning to ask three questions of Moses. And now I really want to turn the tables and say, as we work through this, I, I want you to ask those questions of yourself. We asked, uh, how did Moses identify as, what did he identify as? Who did he identify with? And we see it, it was not with those whom he originally thought were his parents or his family or his culture or even his God. What about you? How do you identify yourself? That's the first question for you this morning. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? 
Now notice I'm not pounding this desk with a rhetorical question that implies that you've overstepped your bounds and you should be in trouble. No, but seriously, I mean, you don't get this question probably asked of you very often, but who do you think that you are? How do you identify yourself? How do you answer that? You likely recognize that it's challenging to identify someone without associating them to someone else or with someone else. For example, my last name is McLean, Mac Lane, and it means son of Lane as far as I can understand. And as a surname, as a last name, it's, it's the most important information that I can give you. It tells you who my father was. It tells you what clan I belong to, at least in an ancient sort of civilization. The, the, the name Abu is the same way. Instead of means son, or, uh, son of Lane, Abu means uh, father of. And so somebody might say, I am Abu, fill in the blank. And that means I am the father of this person. It's really interesting when you think about it. Maybe you have tried to identify yourself just now. Who? How would I describe myself? How would I identify myself? And, and maybe you've already come across that it's important that you identify with other people. I, these are my parents. This is my family. Uh, this is where I work. This is who I work for. Similarly, if I were to say to somebody, and they said to me as I'm uh, sitting in an air, uh, airport or on an airplane, they said, well, what do you do? Well, I'm a pastor. Well, what's the next question? They probably are going to ask me, well, where do you do that at? They want to uh, see who I'm associating with. Well, you work as, a, as an intern. Well, where are you serving as an intern at? That's a really good question. Who are you associating with? So Christian, let me ask you, who are you associating with? When you go to describe yourself, are you including this idea that you are a child of God? I think this morning of John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. That beautiful passage that says, But to all who did receive him, Jesus and his message, who believed on his name, he gave, Jesus gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Christian, how do you identify? Someone were to ask you who you are. Who do you think you are? I encourage, you, I encourage you to consider this verse as being a part of your explanation. That you are a child of God. That you've believed on Jesus' name. You believe the things that he said. That if you were to turn from your sins, trusting completely in Jesus' finished saving work for you, then you have been given the right to become a child of God, a daughter of God, or a son of God. If you identify with Jesus, understand that God identifies with you. And that's important. We do it more when we're young, but some of us never grow out of it, and that's name-dropping. Maybe we meet somebody for the first time and we want this person to know who we are. And so we begin to talk about who we are and who we know. 
Just this week, I was uh, visiting in the home of one of our folks with uh, our, our friend, uh, our intern, William, over here. And as we looked across the, the, the walls that were just plastered with beautiful pictures of family and places visited by this brother, um, there was a picture we noticed of him with a president. And that blew our minds. Did he know this person? You better know if I knew a president, that might be the first person I'd tell you about. Right? If that's true of presidents and mayors and rulers and famous people, is it not also true with God? Even more. If we identify with Jesus, we need to remember that God identifies with us and that is the most important piece of information that we can give somebody when we are defining who we are as a person. And this is what we see taking place in Moses' life. I also think of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, asking this question, who do you think you are? Well, I hope it is in part answered by the contents here in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 21. It says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Friend, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You're not the old person. You are a new person with a new name and a new set of legal docs, so to speak. You remember this idea of Moses, how difficult it would have been for him to have this new understanding of his own identity. It's difficult for us to really grasp it through a movie or a story or a song. Everything that he had ever known about himself, all the ways that he would have identified, even down to his heart language, different, changed. And Moses, no likely at one point in his life, said, I don't much feel like an Israelite. No, I feel like an Egyptian. I talk like one. I act like one. And this counsel from the Apostle Paul applies to him as well. Moses, if, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creature. He is a new creation. Paul's words here reinforce this idea of a transformed identity. If anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. Just as Moses struggled to identify as an Israelite, we too sometimes wrestle with our new identity in Christ. And yet that is who we are. Continuing to think about this idea of identity, I think what's interesting from 2 Corinthians 5 is, is that we are a new creation, we're a new creature, and all this is from God there in verse 18. It says, through whom Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So it's Christ that, that made us one with God and then he said, hey, I want you to go out and I want you to share this message of reconciliation and, and call others to be reconciled to God, to have their guilt and their shame removed and that relationship with God restored. I want you to go out as a messenger with that. Christian, that's who you are today. You're not just a new creature, but you are an ambassador. You're a messenger to share with others who are estranged from God this message of how they can be reconciled to God. 
And maybe we don't have to go far. Maybe there's somebody here this morning that would say, I, I don't really understand this idea of being reconciled with God. This morning, if you sit in this Christian service hearing a Christian message largely delivered to Christian people, I want you to know I'm glad that you're here. And not only am I glad that you're here, but I, I beg you to receive this invitation that we've talked about just now, that you can be reconciled to the Father. That's Jesus' heart for you. Jesus came into this world. He shed his own blood. He died on a cross was buried, raised, and ascended to the Father. Why did he do this work? He did this so that you can be reconciled to the Father, so that your sins could be blotted out. And I beg you this morning, allow Jesus Christ to restore you to the Father so that you too could say, not that you know a president or that you know the mayor, but that you have been restored in good standing and right good fellowship with the God of this world. I'd love to hear about your identity being anchored in Jesus. But you'll remember we, we talked a moment ago of a few things, a few questions, a few topics. We looked briefly at identity, and now I want to look at this idea of treasure. And notice that they're related. I asked you at the very beginning, what did Moses value most? What did Moses value most? Before I answer that question, or before you do, I want you to notice something, that his treasure, what he valued the most, lined up with who he thought himself to be and who he identified as. And I'll illustrate that. A man that calls himself a carpenter, I, I know something about that man. If he is in fact a carpenter, and that is this, that he highly values his tools. His planer, his saw, his drill, he highly values them. And what about a musician, a man who identifies, a woman who identifies as a musician? What do I know about them if, in fact, they truly are a musician that they value more than most things in their lives, an instrument? Or maybe a set of instruments. Regardless of whether you're an athlete or a quilter, when you identify as a certain thing, it's very clear to us that if you truly are that thing, you will value these other things. And we see that clearly in the life of Moses. He identified as a part of the people of God, and therefore we see it aligning with his values. What did Moses value? Look at verse 24, the second part. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, verse 25, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. That's basically the identity part. In his bio on not Twitter but X, he changed it from son of Pharaoh's daughter and he replaced that with a Hebrew, comma, follower of the one true God. That was his identity piece, right? But why did he do that? Well, look at the value language there and starting in verse 26. He considered, he weighed out the reproach of Christ's greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? For he was looking to 
the reward. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. I love the way that the table is set here. On the table is a set of scales, right? And on one side you have the reproach of Christ, the disdain and ridicule of Christ. The mocking that is given to Christ is on one side, and Moses is saying, okay, all right, that's that. Now what's on the other side? And placed on the other side of the scale is all the treasures of Egypt. What's implied there? Well, we don't know for sure. But we know this, whether or not Moses were to be the next king of, of Egypt or whether he were to just be a, a, a soft uh, prince the rest of his life, we don't know. But we know everything that he ever wanted or could have needed was at his fingertips. And it's right there on the other side of the scale. And what do we find out? When Moses lets go of the scale, uh, the scale being his own heart, his own value system, what happens? The reproach, the shame of Christ and his people weighs far more for him than anything that Egypt could afford. The criticism of God's people was more valuable than the dainties of Egypt. Can I ask you a question this morning? We've, we've looked at this idea, what did Moses value? wasn't the treasures of Egypt. It was being with God's people. Let me ask you, though, second question of reflection for you. What do you value most? What do you value most? What is your greatest treasure? Your greatest treasure. We saw what it was for Moses. What is it for you? Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and following give us some really interesting uh, perspectives on treasure and desires of the heart. There, our Lord and Savior Jesus says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures in Egypt. Well, mine says treasures on earth. He goes on, Don't lay it up there where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Quickly, as we think and reflect on this text here, it is interesting how it lines up with Moses' story. If you don't know the timeline of Moses and Jesus, they're separated by a, a, a few years at least, several thousand. And Moses is there in Egypt and, and he's saying in his own heart, I'm not going to lay up for myself treasures on earth, not here in Egypt. I'm not going to do it. Why? Because moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. And all the goodies, all the treasures that the pharaohs throughout time could store up and hide and bury... All of them have been, at least we think, have been dug up, broken into by robbers, and carried away into foreign lands. Even their statues being torn down and destroyed, not just through wars, but also just through time. The greatest achievements of every single Egyptian pharaoh 
being laid to waste. Names eroded away. And it says here that Moses was looking to the reward. Jesus is saying, lay up treasure in heaven. And Moses is saying, I know what my future holds. I know where I'm headed, and that's where I'm going. That's where my true treasure is, much in line with what Jesus has said. And it's so beautiful. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Do you want to know the safest investment the safest place to invest your time and your talent and your treasure, it's in heaven. And the other side of that, do you know the safest place for your own heart? It's also there with your treasure in heaven. You can learn so much about a person by learning what they love. You really, really can. And equally helpful is to learn what they fear. For example... If your greatest fear is death, it stands to reason that maybe one of your greatest treasures is life. But what did Moses fear the most? Look at verse 27. It says, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. How did Moses endure? How did he remain faithful? Well, he recognized that there was a fierce king of Egypt, but he also recognized that there was somebody even more fierce, though they are invisible. That's connected with verse 28. By faith, Moses kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. There's two very, very scary figures here in these few verses. There is, of course, Pharaoh. And most of us aren't too afraid of Pharaoh because it's difficult for him to reach uh, across the, that great pond, the Atlantic Ocean, and it's even more difficult for him to reach down through the, 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 the um, millenniums. He's dead and he's gone, but for somebody like Moses, this is a clear and present danger more than any that you could ever even imagine. And yet Moses looks past this fearful figure and he sees the invisible one. He sees the one that called him to partake in the Passover and to observe it. And to sprinkle the blood, he sees the destroyer of the firstborn and by faith he obeys and so there are several figures for Moses to be afraid of. And which one was he the most afraid of? Which one did he have the greater awe and respect and most obedience to? It was, of course, God. My third question for you to ask yourself. We've seen who Moses was most afraid of. Who Moses had the most respect for. Let me ask you, what is your greatest fear? It's the inverse, really, of the second question. What do you treasure most? Moses had some very, very serious things going on. And, and being on the naughty list of Pharaoh was not cool. And yet he had other things to be concerned with. We've got lots of things to, to be aware of in our lives. 
bills, relationships, our reputation, physical dangers such as snakes and heights and, and many, many other things. Holding all of these fears or concerns and situations in balance, which is the greatest in your mind? I can't help but think of Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 and following. Jesus again speaking, he says to his disciples, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. He says, What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are, you, are, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, are you not of more value than many sparrows? So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Being aware of the present dangers in your life, yet also submitting to God is the path that Moses took. And it's the path that we are called to take as well. There's lots of things in our lives to be concerned about. There's lots of things for us to be anxious about. And that's really a popular word these days. Anxiety. I think from this text we really can understand something along the lines that when we maintain an exhaustive list of present dangers while holding an anemic view of God's presence and goodness in our lives, we are prone to experience anxiety. I'll say it another way, meticulously cataloging the current threats while maintaining a diminished, a diminished perception of God's constant and presence and benevolence towards us, it leads us to intense feelings of fear. You look at Moses' life, Moses had some pretty serious threats in his life. He was an enemy of the state there in Egypt. He was the man that would deliver God's people. And from our perspective, that looks pretty awesome. But from the perspective of the Egyptians, that's how you get on the top of the bad boy list. You take the, the workhorses, literally, the labor group out of a people group, and you've got a serious, serious problem. And yet, for Moses, he looks at Pharaoh, he looks at the fact that he's now on Pharaoh's most wanted list, and he's not crippled with anxiety. Instead, we see that he is looking past Pharaoh. He's looking to the destroyer of the firstborn. He's looking to his creator God who is saying, I want you to set my people free, to lead them into the wilderness so that they can worship me fully. I want you to deliver them to the promised land. I want you to observe the Passover, which is a commemoration of the key being 
open or he opening the lock there in Egypt, Moses was able to obey God. Why? And, and face the consequences. Why? Because of his faith in God. Now, we've talked a little bit about the relationship between identity and treasure or identity and values. And we've talked a little bit about the relationship between uh, treasures or values and our fears and how they're really a mirror image of each other, one in the positive and one in the negative. But I want to speak to you about this idea briefly before we move on about your treasures and your values and your fears and how they relate to your identity. This morning you may be saying, hey, I, I want to be a person that identifies with God. And because I'm a person that identifies, because I want to be that person, I've got to then be, first be a person whose treasures and fears align with God first. And then my identity will become a part of him. Then I can identify with him. And this is antithetical to what the scriptures teach us. The scriptures don't say to us, in other words, God is not saying to you, if you can get in line with me, if you can fear me more than everything else, and if you can treasure me more than everything else, then I will call you one of my children and everything will go well with you. It's actually the opposite of that. This morning, God is speaking to each of us, and he is not saying, be better. He is saying, my son has done the work on your behalf. You are not worthy, and yet my son is. And he has made the payment for you. Will you receive it? So this morning, if you think, well, I need to be a better person, I need to... I need to rearrange my and reprioritize my fears and reprioritize my values so that I can then identify with God. I want you to, to be reminded that you can rest in God knowing that simply admitting your sin, looking to Jesus as the, as the, cleansing, the cleanser of your sins, who has made you because of his own righteousness, made you at one with God, then that frees you up to then live in light and in line with the values and fears that he has called us to have. There's not one of us this morning that would say that my values and my fears align perfectly with what God says about me. There's work that each of us can do. And in order for us to sort of move that way to where we can align our fears and our treasures underneath the identity that God says that we really have, it would be helpful for us to, to really look at some of these challenges that we're facing. And so I've got a list, and they're not exhaustive, but really they, they just come to the surface from the story of Moses here. What are some challenges to identifying with Christ like Moses did? Well, number one, it's done by faith and not sight. It's done by faith and not sight. You need to know that's a challenge. It's not insurmountable. Of course it's not. And yet it is a difficulty. We're not called to live by sight. We are called to live by faith. We see this in the life of Moses. Again, briefly, Moses has always thought himself to be an Egyptian, and now he is not an Egyptian He's an Israelite, and he's not just an Israelite, but he is an Israelite that is to lead God's people out of the cities and country and into this new land that God would give them. 
Christian, if you're to live by faith, or if you're to identify with Christ, you will have to do that by faith and not by sight. You think of the first audience there of this book, Letter to the Hebrews. What were they facing? Well, they had begun as a people to identify with Christ, and then difficulties had followed. At at the first, it made sense. Even walking by sight, things were going well, and then it came to the point where they were losing loved ones. They were losing their properties. They were losing their reputations. Things were not as easy as they had been, and still the preacher is calling out to them, and he's saying, remember Jesus. Remember the rest that he promised. Remember the reward that is sure. Look to that. Look beyond the things that you see in this life that are awfully scary, and look to God. Remember, if we're going to identify with Christ, we will have to walk by faith and not sight. That's one way. That's one challenge that we have. And here's another one. Identifying with Christ delays gratification. It delays gratification. If you think of the life of Moses, again, he had that set of scales before him. Right now, if he didn't make any changes, if he didn't identify with the people of God, He could eat the Pharaoh's dainties the rest of his life, never having a want or a care. That was immediate. It was present. It was there. And yet to identify with Christ, to identify with the reproach of Christ, with Christ's people, it would would involve him having to wait to receive the fullness of his reward. Now, the promise of the reward he had But the fulfillment of the reward, he did not. Not at this point. In fact, we read not long ago, and we'll see again, that many people in Christ die without receiving the promise in this life. And that's what we have to come to grips with as Christians. As we walk through this life, it's not always going to be the most gratifying. No, no, no. We say we'll wait for the reward that is to come. We'll not spoil our dinner now. We'll wait for when the king's meal is served. This is what Moses said, and this is what we'll do too. This is a challenge to identify with Christ. Our gratification will be delayed. And we've got to be okay with that. A third thing that I see from this story, this challenge, the third challenge to identifying with Christ is that it, it does now incur, or incur ridicule. And that's what's really meant by this reproach of Christ. Reproach of Christ's people. We, we know in this particular situation that uh, the, the people of Israel, the Hebrews there in Egypt, they were ridiculed. They were thought very little of. Similar to the life of David. People looking at David and saying, where is your God? There's no hope for you in God. It's very similar for the people of Israel, the Hebrews there. You worship what God? You only have one God, we have many gods. And where is your God? He's obviously very weak. You are our servants, did you know that? You don't really own any property. You have no rights or values. Is this what your God would have for you? 
in a sense, it is ridiculous, at least in this pers- from their perspective. And it's not very much different for us. When we truly, as Christians, identify with Christ, it does seem a little bit ridiculous to those who look on. The preaching of the gospel is foolishness to them who are perishing. That's to be expected. In this life, if we identify with Christ, we will incur ridicule. That's a challenge. And maybe it's helpful for you to just know that this is what you can expect. When we are called to really, and we are, when we truly identify with Christ, we're saying yes to him, and it ends up saying no to others. And so it, 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 incur, it incurs ridicule. And the fourth and final challenge that I want to offer you this morning is this, that it requires a change. It requires a change. Did you notice for Moses, he's not able to just identify with the people of God and continue just business as usual. No, it literally for him required a geographical move. It required a change. His, because his values changed, because his fears changed, because his identity changed, he had to make a geographical change. Again, it's not too dissimilar for us. That's a real challenge for us. In order for us to identify with Christ, it requires that we make a change in our lives. This morning in Sunday school, we were chatting around and talking about changes in our lives. And I remember in my life when I finally understood what God was showing me in Christ, that I could be forgiven, that I could be restored, that I could be pulled out of this miry pit and set on a rock. I remember initially thinking, I'm so glad that God is willing to clean me up and rescue me because I've really made a mess of things. And now I can get back on track with serving my own self and and doing whatever I'd like to do. It wasn't long before, as Pastor Chris taught this morning in Sunday school, that the mind of this fool was renewed. And I realized that I'm not any longer belonging to myself. That now there's been a change in my life. Jesus hasn't just saved me so that I can go make a mess again and serve my, continuing to serve my own lusts and desires, serving myself, but he has saved me so that I can serve him. It required a change in my life, and in your life it does as well. If we're truly to identify with Christ, there are changes that are required. Now, there's a million ways that we could talk about this I want to challenge you this morning. How will you overcome these obstacles? These obstacles of the changes that are needed in your life, this idea that you're actually going to be ridiculed, that you're not going to get what your heart wants in this exact moment all the time, and you can't even see with your own eyes where you're going. You have to walk by faith. How do we get through this? Well, that's the answer. We walk by faith faith. We believe God. We believe what God has said. Again, related to identity, God says, reminds us that those who believe in Jesus have been given the right to become children of God. I don't know how all of the ranks stack up, but I know 
son of God is better than prince of Egypt. I know that. This morning, I don't know where you're at, but maybe you're here this morning and you say, I want to be reconciled to God. You say, I want to have my guilt removed. I want to have my shame removed. Well, the book of Hebrews is all about studying and and calling us to look to Jesus. Believing that we are fully cleansed when we fully trust and lean on his completed work on our behalf. We're made right with God through Christ. Maybe for a while you've been identifying as a Christian. Maybe that's one of your problems. You're, maybe instead of not being willing to identify as a Christian, maybe you have been willing to identify as a Christian because you said you believe in God. But, but true faith, friend, it's not just believing in God that he exists. It's believing what God has said. And what has God said? Well, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father unless he comes through me. That's what Jesus said. And so have you fully placed your trust in Jesus, in his completed work? If not, why not today? Why not today? Or maybe you're a Christian and you've had a hard time publicly identifying as a Christian. You've had a, a difficult time really uh, dealing with this idea that you've got to walk by faith and not sight. Or you've got to in, in, incur this ridicule or, or delay gratification. Maybe that's the problem that you're having and facing this morning. Remember Moses. He considered the shame of Jesus and he knew that it was far better than the riches of this country. He knew that what God had promised him was far better than what he has experienced in this exact moment. Do you remember what the scriptures say that what's been promised for us is not worth even comparing to what has been prepared, what is being prepared for us and what will one day be revealed? Friends, we have to remember what our God has said. True faith involves aligning one's values, what you treasure, what makes you anxious, your fears, Aligning them with your identity in Christ. Now, as we move to the communion table, I want to encourage you to reflect on those three themes. The three themes that we've discussed. Identity, treasures, and fears. Christian, as you come to the table this morning and you eat at, from the, the king's plate here, I want you to remember that you are able to come because he has made you his. Not because you've made yourself his. Not even because you chose him, but because he has chosen to make you his. It's his mercy. It's his goodness that invites us to come to his table and to receive him. Also, as we think of fears coming to this table, remember... What's pictured here in these two elements is the justice, the fierce justice of a holy God demonstrated, executed on the Son of God. We see broken body. We see shed blood. Why? Because of the fierce justice of our God. 
And yet we don't come to this table to tremble with fear, but we come to this table recognizing that that wrath of our good and just God has been abated by the work of Jesus, the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. And that leads us to the last piece. We come to this table and we see that it is lifting up the most prized possession that we have, and that is Jesus himself. If all we have in this life is the reproach of Christ, but it is Christ, then it's far more than anything this world can offer. You've heard it said, take this world, but give me Jesus. In a sense, that's what's pictured when we come to the Lord's table. We're coming here and we're saying, you can have everything else. This is what I want. This is what I need. And this is what my good king and God has provided for me. Father, we thank you that you've made provision for us. Even when we were your enemies, you sent your son to die for us. While we hated you, each of us, you offered your son as a sacrifice, and Jesus as a willing sacrifice. You humbled yourself, became obedient to the Father, obedient even to the point of death. Apart from your work in our lives, we would continually identify as your enemies. But this morning, we can identify as children of God because of you. Jesus, our older brother, we love you, and we thank you for that. Jesus, thank you that you've offered yourself for us, and you've taken the wrath of God that we see pictured here this morning, and what you've left for us is grace. Jesus, we know the reality that our sins are forgiven because of the work that you've done. Would you allow us to experience the joy of that? which is at least in part what you had in mind when you commanded us to partake in the supper. And so while we think of the, the sadness and shame and the guilt and all those things, Father, would you help us to celebrate the supper together? Joy in our hearts and thanksgiving on our lips. Father, we give you thanks now. We ask a blessing on this meal. In the name of Jesus, amen.